Good morning. Really, really glad you're here. For those walking online, glad you're connecting with us. Hope you sense the presence of God and engage Him this morning. That's what we're here for, isn't it? Fourth of July, isn't that cool? Love Fourth of July. Love our country. Love <clears throat> setting off fireworks. I like blowing stuff up. My family's full of pyromaniacs, and we kind of enjoyed the whole experience. Celebration of American culture. And I'm going to talk about something about as countercultural as it gets today. Bottom line, if you're not a Jesus follower, what I talk about this morning may reinforce your resistance. If you are a Jesus follower and you're looking for a reason to quit, I'll probably give you one in the next little bit. Because sometimes following Jesus makes you weird, really mockably weird, even dangerous to some. But I'd still encourage you guys to listen in because maybe there really is a God. And maybe God wants to be your God for your good. Maybe Jesus really is the Son of God. And maybe what Jesus thinks is more important than what you think. Maybe his way is actually a better way. Their way is not working. Guys, we've always been called to be different right from the start. Back in the world of Jesus, the Pharisees were kind of the all-stars of the spiritual world. They were the elite, the best of the best. And Jesus says this. He says, I warn you guys, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're the best. He says, I want you guys to be better. Huh. You're going to be different. The way that you're going to do life will even be weirder than the way that they do life, he says. And if you think Jesus' followers did look weird back then, which they did, today a real Jesus' follower is going to look weird on steroids. We live in the middle of a culture that is intoxicated with anger, hate, and rage. We talked about that last week, a cancel culture. And Jesus says, not you guys. Kind of working our way down through the Sermon on the Mount. We live in a culture intoxicated with sexual license. And Jesus says, not you guys. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I don't know if this actually captures the spirit of our age or not, but it kind of seems to me like you can say it boils down to two real big ideas. Number one, it's my body. And number two, it's just sex. You can add other things to the list if you want, but it seems to me that these belong there, and I keep hearing people say these things in a plethora of ways. It's my body, right? A woman has a right to control her own body. You can't tell me what to do with my body. My body, I have the right to choose which gender I want to be or which gender I think I really am. I don't have to accept the gender I was assigned at birth, do I? It's my body. I can use it how I want, treat it how I want, abuse it if I want. It's my body, right? Well, what if God thinks it's his? What if your creator thinks that your body is still his? What if the bodies around you that you want to use or abuse actually belong to him? What if God actually thinks he has some say in what we should do with these bodies? That'd be wild, wouldn't it? Apostle Paul put it like this. He says something as countercultural as it gets. He says, you don't belong to yourself. You don't own you. It's not your body. 
God bought you with a high price. You've got to honor God with your body his way. Hmm. Then how about it's just sex, right? What if it's not? What if it is to you, but it's not to God? Does that matter? Just sex. Found this in an article in Vanity Fair several years ago, and I don't know whether they captured the spirit of our culture or not. I hope they exaggerated. These guys are on their phones trying to set up their next hookup. One guy says, you can't be stuck in one lane. There's always something better. Another guy explains how it's done now. He says, you can either go to a bar and talk to two or three girls, pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple of hundred people a day. Sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them because it's just sex, right? Another guy says, I sort of play that I could be a boyfriend kind of guy in order to win them over, but when they want me to care more, I just don't. Another guy says, it's kind of like ordering takeout, only you're ordering a person. Because it's just sex, right? Another guy says, women play the game exactly the same way. They're always looking for someone better who has a better job, more money. In fact, some ladies admit that the dating apps they use are just a way to get free meals. They call it Tinder food stamps. And here's the writer of the article, her summation. She says, in a perfect world, in her perfect world, we'd all have sex with whomever we want. Nobody would mind, get judged, get dumped. But there's this jealousy and sexism, not to mention the still flickering chance that someone might actually fall in love. It's just sex, right? What if it's not? And I suspect that they suspect that it's not. I suspect that they sense that their way isn't working. You don't actually have to read between the lines of articles like these to realize that. One lady says it's rare. It's rare for a woman of our generation to meet a man who treats her like a priority instead of an option. As sad as that. They need to see us different, weirdly different. They need to see a better way. Did you know that you do not have to follow your heart? Did you know that it is not your body? Did you know that it is not just sex? And did you know that there is one who does have the authority and the wisdom to lead us a different way, a better way? Here it is. Jesus says, I'm warning you guys, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the spiritual elite, unless the way you do life is actually purer than the way that they're doing life, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, they think... It's about what you do on the outside. They think it's enough just to stop short of murder. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, even your unrighteous anger will put a wedge between you and God. You care about your anger. That was last week. This week. Jesus says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I'm going to tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Really? You think he's serious? Some of you are kind of like, well, see, you're God, just an old prude, right? Archaic, regressive, repressive, kind of like the supreme cosmic killjoy. She just hates sex or something? Maybe not. 
Maybe we're not listening. Maybe we don't get it yet. By the way, for the next couple of minutes, I'm going to kind of steal a thread from Tim Keller, a great teacher up in New York. I've taught this text several times, even here, but he's got a little different path than I've used before, and it's really good. So if I unpack this in a way that seems really, really smart, it's because I steal from the best. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you must not commit adultery. That's in the Old Covenant. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. And you'll notice that Jesus is not eliminating the Old Covenant command. He's just broadening it. He's deepening it. Because there is a God-honoring sex ethic that runs through both Old and New Covenants with God. And it essentially boils down to this. Sex is from marriage. Don't engage in sex outside of the covenant of marriage. Hmm. See, there are different kinds of relationships, aren't there? There are legal relationships, but marriage is supposed to be more loving and more intimate than just a legal contract. There are emotional relationships. We can be bound to each other by our feelings. But a marriage is supposed to be more binding and enduring than emotions can sustain. God wants marriage to be a covenant. God says sex belongs there. Here's another way of looking at it. You can talk about consumer relationships and covenant relationships. There are consumer and covenant relationships. If I am a consumer, I'm looking for a good product at a good price and I'm always open to an upgrade, right? So if you keep on meeting my needs, we're good. If I discover better elsewhere, I'm out of here. If you happen to be my vendor, your job is to keep me happy. If your partner is a consumer, you're always wondering, am I doing well enough or is he out there shopping for an upgrade? Am I as good or better than what he's had before? How am I measuring up? Covenant relationship is different, way different. I made a promise. Keeping my promise, doing whatever I can to build this relationship is more important than my needs. Huh. It's not about how well you're serving me. It's about whether I'm honoring you. Hmm. Now, if two people are in a relationship, one sees it as a consumer relationship, the other one sees it as a covenant relationship, we've got a problem because it can easily turn exploitative. Serve me or else. But if both people see it as a covenant relationship, they can build something incredibly powerful and incredibly rich, which is what God wants for us. You see, covenant relationships create what Keller calls a zone of security, safe space where you can drop your masks and quit auditioning for each other. I mean, in a consumer relationship, you're always in the marketing game, right? Always having to sell yourself, perform, meet their needs, or they're out. Covenant relationship, you know that you're both in it. For better, for worse. For richer, for poor. Sickness and in health. Till death do you part. How cool is that? And it creates this zone of security in which, paradoxically, ironically, weirdly enough, your feelings for each other can actually grow way, way deeper than they ever could in a consumer relationship. You might actually experience real love. 
not the shoddy counterfeits that are messing people over every day. And in the covenant relationship, you experience this freedom. See, in a consumer relationship, in a relationship where you're always open to an upgrade, in a relationship where your needs have to be met, in a relationship where you have to feel it, when the feelings are gone, you're out of there. You know why? Because you are a slave to the most fickle thing about you, which is your emotions. And so you utter nonsense like, I have to follow my heart. (laughs) Your heart's a terrible guide. If you want to be free from the tyranny of your emotions, make a promise and keep it. See, in both covenants, Old and New Testament covenant, marriage is a covenant relationship, not a consumer relationship. In a consumer marriage, you're going to go find somebody who's going to meet your needs, and you're going to stay with them as long as they do. Some of you guys started out in a covenant relationship, and you're kind of still with each other physically, but you've checked out emotionally a long time ago. That's turned into a consumer relationship. And I'm telling you guys that consumer relationships build little, tiny, puny, self-centered people. Covenant relationships, it's based on a promise. There's an unconditional feel to it, you know, the better or worse stuff. And here it is. Sex becomes a sacrament. Now, that doesn't mean it's not fun. It's supposed to be fun. But it means it's more than just sex. Sacrament is an external visible sign of an internal reality. It pictures on the outside what's happening on the inside. The the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. It's an external visible sign of what God has done for us on the inside. Baptism is a sacrament, an external visible sign of what God is doing on the inside. And sex is like that for a marriage. You see, in a covenant relationship, two people are giving themselves to each other completely, holding nothing back. Sex pictures that. In fact, it's almost monstrous, almost cruel, certainly petty and self-centered to give and take sexually without being willing to give the rest of yourself to that person the person that you're now using. By the way, since I'm on a roll today offending people, let me give you a sidebar on living together. I know it's become the norm culturally and it's become a norm for a lot of Jesus followers. But it is a violation of the will of God. For good reason. And not because God is a cosmic prude. It's because God wants the best for his kids and he doesn't want us to settle. I mean, the people who actually study this stuff, I'm not talking about people who follow their hearts and mock those who don't. People who actually study this stuff tell you about the downside. I'm just going to give you a tip of the iceberg, just a few of the numbers. Over half of those under 45 have lived with an unmarried partner at some point. Over two-thirds of us Americans think it's acceptable, even if you don't plan on marrying. Does that make it right? By the way, that number goes up to 80% for those who are under the age of 30. Did you know that married adults, however, have a higher level of relationship satisfaction than those who are living together? Huh. I'd be God and dumb. And you know that those who live together before marriage are actually more likely to divorce after marriage? That's counterintuitive, isn't it? 
because you always hear these so-called gurus out there that are telling you that you have to check to see if you're compatible before you tie the knot, right? So living together is smart, right? And about two-thirds to three-quarters of our kids actually buy that nonsense. They are so naive. But the stats make sense. You see, listen, those who cohabit usually admit that their standards for a live-in are lower than those for a spouse. When you shack up, there's a back door, right? Escape hatch. If an upgrade becomes available, why not? So one girl says, I feel like I'm in a never-ending audition because it's the consumer mentality. I'm trying to check out if this one's good enough to marry or whether I can do better because I'm open to an upgrade, right? And for those who are living together, usually sex becomes marketing. It's necessary to attract, entice, and hold the relationship together instead of the trusting, angst-free, fearless giving that God meant it to be. Now, guys, that's just the tip of the iceberg of why it's not God's way, but I want to get back to the text. I know this stuff is hard. It's countercultural, big time. It's counterintuitive until you actually start trying to think it out. And you have to admit their way's not working. Their way is killing people out there. And Jesus is about to take it to a brand new level. Jesus says, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. That's both Old Covenant. Jesus reinforces it for the New Covenant. But, Jesus says, I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. And guys, that takes it to an entirely new level, doesn't it? Back in 1976, Jimmy Carter, right before the election, Jimmy Carter was interviewed by Playboy. Now, whatever you might think of Jimmy Carter as a president, he tried to be a good man, a Jesus follower, an honest man. And he almost lost the election in part because of what he said to Playboy. He said, I've looked at a lot of women with lust. I have committed adultery in my heart many times. He's an honest man. He's a courageous man. Because so have most all of us. Because it's not just about what we do with our bodies, is it? Jesus says it's about what we do with our minds and our hearts. God sees the hearts. We look at the outside of a guy. God sees the heart. And the comedians and the pundits, they just took out after Jimmy Carter. And they mocked Jesus. Really? It's a sin to want sex? And even if you don't act on it, what kind of a God are you worshiping? Repressive, regressive, cosmic prude? And they actually think that we think that sexual desire is going to take a person to hell. Just ludicrous. Absolutely ignores the R rating of so many of the stories of our Bible. I mean, right from the start, Genesis chapter 2, our story starts with a naked man breaking into poetry at the sight of a naked woman. And God is good with it. Holy cow, God, you did good. They were naked and without shame. And God loved it. Adam wasn't sinning. His response was exactly what God wanted. Proverbs says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And he's not talking about her cooking. 
He said, let, let her breast satisfy you always. And I think, guys, there are some times when you need to take the Bible literally. He says, may you always be captivated by her love. Those are not the sentiments of a prudish God. Song of Solomon goes way beyond an R rating. In fact, a lot of the translators kind of chicken out. It actually describes the wonder of a husband and a wife in full sexual arousal. It's a celebration of married sex. The idea that we have a prudish God is just ignorance. He just wants it in a context where it is magically good, not destructive. Magically good. And here's what's weird. The word for lust that was selected by Matthew to convey what Jesus meant is not the simplest word for lust. He chooses a word that can be used for nearly any kind of intense desire or greed or even idolatry. You can actually use the word for money. If you look at money with lust in your eyes. Nothing wrong with money, guys. God isn't against money. He's not against people being rich. A lot of good, God-honoring rich people in the Bible. The problem is not with money. The problem is when money starts to have you. And your life starts revolving around money because money can become an addiction and not just for rich people, right? Got to have it. Got to get it. I'm going to cut corners for it. I'm going to use people to get it. I'll abuse people to get it. I'm going to overwork to get it. And then sometimes we start fantasizing. You know what I'm going to be able to do when I get my money? You know what I'm going to be able to have? Do you know what people are going to finally admire and respect me and listen to me when I've got my money? In other words, we start looking to money to give us the security and the affirmation that only God can give. We start to make money our God it starts becoming more important to us than our God. Works with sex too. Gotta have it, gotta get it, cut corners for it, use people to get it, I'm gonna abuse people to get it. And you know that when I finally do get it, people are gonna admire me and desire me and respect me when I get mine. And we start looking to sex to give us what affirmation and security that only God can give and start to make it a God more important than our God. Last week we talked about two things that I need to bring back. We talked about the two greatest commandments. Remember them? Number one, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's number one. Love him first. Everything you are. Number two, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Love each other. You've got to love God first and you've got to love your neighbor almost first. So... When our love for sex becomes more important to us than our love for God, we've crossed the line. When our desire for sex puts a wedge between us and God, when we let sex become more important to us than God, we have a problem. I'll show you how big a problem in just a moment. And listen to this. You've got to listen to it. It's weird. When your love for sex becomes more important to you than your love for each other, when your love for sex becomes more important to you than your love for people, you've crossed the line. When we use each other for our pleasure, when we abuse each other for our pleasure, when we lie using lines like this, if you love me, because if I loved you, I wouldn't dare put a wedge between you and your God. Martin Luther said, love God and do what you want. If you really love God, you really love what God loves, 
you're not going to be looking for a consumer relationship. You're going to be looking for a covenant. Apostle Paul put it similarly. He said, God's commandments are summed up in just this one, love your neighbor as yourself, because love doesn't wrong each other. So it fulfills the loves of God. Boils down to that, guys. Love God first and love each other God's way. And all of a sudden, from that lens, this stuff starts making sense. Now, it's serious. It's eternally serious. Listen to what Jesus says. He actually says, if your eye, even your gut eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away because it's better to lose one eye than it is for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus doesn't mean to be taken literally. Early Jesus followers were not known for their eye patches and their hooks. And the fact is, I can lust with my eyes closed just as easily as I can with my eyes wide open. It's about the heart. What Jesus is saying is, guys, take this seriously. Don't blow this off. Be honest about the damage that your lust can do to you, can do to your relationship with God, and can do to the people that you're supposed to love can destroy you, it can destroy your relationships, it can destroy people you love, it can enslave you, it can addict you, it can become your God. Don't let it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love each other. Love God because he's worth it. And it's the only way you can be what you are meant to be. Bottom line, guys, when you read stuff like this, Kind of sobering. I doubt there's a person in this room that would get a perfect score from Jesus on this stuff. Some of you would probably score pretty well under the old covenant. No sex before marriage, no sex outside of marriage. You've done okay. But I suspect that all of us fall short of the way Jesus taught it because Jesus said it's not just about keeping your hands pure, it's about your heart. So we fail. Does that mean we should lower the bar? Does that mean we should settle for less? Does it mean we should throw up our hands and say, well, just go ahead and follow your heart. You're going to fail anyway. No. We need some grace. We need some wisdom. We need some grace and truth. Fortunately, God is really, really good at both. Some of you guys are married, but to be ruthlessly honest, you're in a consumer marriage. You need to change. You need to go back and remember those promises you made for better, for worse, and you need to start building something that is God-honoring. It's never too late to start again, is it? Some of you guys are married. You want a covenant marriage, and your partner doesn't. It's a consumer marriage to him or her. What do you do? Be the kind of man or woman God wants you to be. Don't settle. Some of you guys aren't married yet, but you're already consumers. You're out there trying to get what you can get for you. You need to repent. Change the way you think so you can change the way you act. It's not easy. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. But doing life God's way is going to head off a whole boatload of problems. Don't you think that you can date as a consumer and then turn the switch and become a covenant person when you're married? 
Some of you guys have kids in the room and you're a little uncomfortable because I've been preaching on this stuff. You don't teach your kids this stuff, they're going to become consumers because that's their world. Do you know that? And they will never experience the fullness that God wants for them. Our culture is going to pull at them. Don't be so naive as to think that your kids are going to escape it. We have work to do. And there's some kids in the room, and maybe this stuff sounds a little wild to you. Let me tell you this. Like any other thing that God gives us, we can abuse sex and cheapen it, and it's not going to be what God meant it to be for us. And there may be no place where it's going to be harder for you to be a Jesus follower in our world than in our sexual life. But that's what we're called to do. And maybe some of you guys didn't know this stuff. You might be a brand new Jesus follower. Or maybe you've heard what our culture is screaming and it's drowned out. What God has said and you've assumed your behavior is okay. What are you going to decide? Listen, guys, it isn't your moral or immoral behavior that's going to separate you from God. It's going to be your refusal to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. See the Lord of your life. You've got, you got to decide whether you're going to be willing to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and whether you're willing to love each other His way, whether you're willing to be a Jesus follower. That's the heart of it, isn't it? One more, if you've been at war with your lusts, you'd like to do this, but you're losing this war, I'm going to suggest that you try out our Celebrate Recovery. meets on Tuesday nights. You'll find some powerful allies in your battle for purity. Just remember, guys, God is amazing with grace. He is really good at helping those who want to reboot. Ask His forgiveness. Ask his strength. Maybe God has convicted you this morning. I don't know. I don't know where you are on these things. If he has, don't push back. We've got a good God. And he wants the best for us. Maybe that you're not a Jesus follower and you begin to realize, well, maybe the path I've been on just, it's not working. It's not going to take me where I want to be. Well, let's switch paths. Let's make that happen. Come and talk to me right down here in the front. I'm going to be down there. We've got an elder praying for you in that prayer room. Catch me after the service. I'd love to chat with you about making Jesus the Lord of your life. Guys, if God convicts you, let him change you. It's not enough just to be convicted. His goal is to transform us into the people he meant for us to be. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we're so grateful for your truth because you desire to make us better and we are so grateful for your grace we need it so desperately give us the wisdom to be people of God in the name of Christ we pray these things Amen